Welcome to episode eight of Podcana. This is a Disney's Lorcana podcast. I'm Matt DeMarco, aka Flake, alongside Brendan Patrick, always bringing you the news, notes, highlights, strategy. Brendan, we got some information. Talk to us. Yep, so this week we're off the back of the Gamma Expo. We're going to talk about new cards, Lorcana's in-person debut, which, by the way, looked hectic, as well as some new information about organized the organized play structure and mission. But as always, let's start with that Elsa icebreaker. Elsa? Do you want to build a snowman? All right, so the Elsa icebreaker this week, Brendan, is actually a special one because I actually got an in-person question, submission. Mm. Uh, This one from a good friend of mine, Lunchbox23. I've known this dude for, my God, since high school. And I was like, hey, you want to submit something to the podcast? He's like, hell yeah, I do. And he gave me the most Lunchbox-esque question ever, which is, and I quote, which Disney princess would win in an all-out battle royale? Um, I... I know who you've got, and I think that yeah, it's, I mean, I think you do. You're, you have this evergreen answer, so I'll let you go because yours is easy. Well, honestly, I have to ask a question first, which is, uh, is Mulan a princess? Of course she is. So, I mean, if we're, gonna, if we're actually going to like, qualify it here, Disney princess, I think, to me, is any female lead of a movie. Or it does even like a secondary character, you know. I feel like she might be like low key actually a princess too. I feel like that's like part of the narrative, right? I, I don't remember the beginning of the movie, but we'll, we'll say she's a princess. I mean, she would smoke. She would smoke the other ones, huh? Right? Yeah. Well, I mean, if exactly, if we're actually giving the, you know, if there was money on the table for this one, Mulan is the absolute number one answer. However, however, I mean, are, like, how do you not pick Elsa with her ice magic? It's the Elsa. Honestly, yeah, I haven't I haven't seen the else. It's Frozen, right? That's the movie she's in. <laughs> yes, that's I've watched all my Disney movies on VHS, and that movie is not on VHS. I, I think that you and I are in the same boat. Where like Disney movies after VHS have just become a <laughs> if I catch it, I catch it. Um, I have seen Frozen. I was dating a girl at the time. She loved that movie. I hated it, and I would hear <laughs> the song over and over again. So, like, to me, there's also psychic damage that occurs when Elsa's there because the first thing you think of is, do you want to build a snowman? And then you just want to rip your eyes out and flush them down the toilet kind of thing. If you can't stick your fingers in it and do this thingy to make it go backwards, I'm not watching it at this point. (laughs) We're old, Brendan Patrick. We're freaking old. Uh, So, thank you, Lunchbox, for that wonderful uh, icebreaker of a question this week. Um, And then we got the headlines, Brendan Patrick. Yep. So let's look at this trove, which we're going to pop up on screen for you. Um, Not a lot of new, crazy new like information coming out with this, but you know, I will point out they did blur the emerald and uh, steel cards, which was pretty rude of them. Not going to lie. I know the emerald players, the emerald stands at this point are pretty sad about it. Emerald not having a ton of tools. If you have been playtesting with the spoiler cards, uh, so waiting on some new ones, <laughs> new ones for that for that color in particular. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that par for the course on this on this product release looks high quality, looks well thought out. If there's one thing that Lorcana is doing correctly, is I think that they're coming in with. Uh, I don't know. They've they've had a great strategy in terms of product design, uh, development, and the, like. The overall execution looks very professional. Looks like they've sunk, you know money into it and they're invested in it and it doesn't look like you know this is just some sort of tce has been whipped up and it's going to be thrown on shelves so overall all i can really say about this item in particular is it just looks reaffirms things we already know about lorcana which is that it's going to be competing to be sort of a uh, top three tcg it looks like 
Yeah, and it looks clean. And like you mentioned, the way that this package kind of comes together, the packs, the, the, the rule book, even just getting a look at the opening of the treasure trove, um, it looks like the box is like a sturdy storage box. It's something that you're not going to toss away or throw in the recycling bin or whatnot. Much like, um, I, I don't know if you remember from like Nationals, the Flesh and Blood Nationals, you got that like collector box. Like mm -hmm. I still got mine. My I've got cards sorted in it. It's a, it's a nice piece. And I think that you're also kind of the $50 price tag for this. I think it's 50 bucks or something like that. You're getting You're getting a decent value, I feel. I don't think you're going to feel cheated out of this. Yeah, I feel like that's how they get you on a lot of stuff. <laughs> so, speaking of like good value, but I feel like they get you on a lot of these these products. Um, uh, with they have packs in them, right? But usually the val like the cost is much greater than the packs. And the idea is that they're also selling you like a storage box, a way to like you know hold your decks, etc. I think ultimately a lot of this stuff gets outpaced by third parties that offer similar to sort of better alternatives. But if you're like, I want to buy one Lorcana product that goes on my kitchen table that I can bring out as a pseudo board game, I mean, this is exactly what you need. No, you're spot on. Um, besides that, obviously, we're going to talk about a lot of the stuff that emerged from the Gamma Convention Q&A. There was some players out there. I just want to give some props to. Uh, I completely forgot. There was somebody who did an incredible job essentially just consolidating all the information that came out of the Q&A from the Gamma, uh, the Gamma Convention, and it's all on Reddit. I don't have the name offhand, and that's on me. I apologize, but if you are that person, please comment in the uh, in the YouTube in the YouTube comments, etc. But a lot of very pointed information emerged from there. One of which mm -hmm. is no first edition print runs. So that is already put to rest. Yep, and so I'm assuming with with how that works is they're going to keep. Uh, printing for the first set a bit open-ended. So, like, if we just look back at sort of a recent case study, I'll look at Flesh and Blood. Flesh and Blood was a game that was designed to have an eternal format, a non-rotating format, which obviously has scalability issues when you look at the first set that was released in 2019, right? And, like, how does that scale to 2030? Well, it doesn't, right? Because you can't just print it. Even if you're planning to print it on demand in the future, it, it really just doesn't make sense because that's not how things tend to be printed in the TCG industry. They're more batches and bundles so what that scaled into eventually is they would uh increase the print run of the first the first set and they would call it something called unlimited and they ultimately they retired the printing entirely so that actually rotated out of printing and became a sort of i guess pseudo first edition if you want to clump it all together in the first expansion there was a differentiation between first edition and unlimited in this case it seems like they're going to keep by saying no first edition and stuff like that, they're keeping the production a bit open-ended, print a little bit more to demand. But ultimately, I do think that uh, the first set here will be collectible. Like, I don't think they're going to be printing the first set in five to ten years. So, yeah, a little so bit standard, I think. It doesn't mean that it's never going to stop. It just means that they're not essentially saying, oh, this is our first batch, and then you got to mm -hmm. wait for the second batch or whatnot. So um, a little bit of relief, I suppose, in that, because you know how that goes. People are just going to... Not good. <laughs> yeah, never good. I don't think it's... Uh, it's been a while since people thought that that was a good idea. Uh, the, the other element here was that they have announced that there's going to be no pre-release events, and I think that ties into the theme of what this episode is going to be, which is talking a little bit about the competitive play uh, scheme as well, but no pre-release events kind of feels odd to me because it doesn't have to be a competitive thing. It could just be, hey, get your first licks in of the new cards. 
Yeah, so I definitely understand the approach of no high-level organized play announced initially because the logistics of pulling together something like a world championship or a regional circuit, very complex, right? Like extremely challenging. Pre-release events, though, seem like the bare minimum, and they're not even competitive in nature, right? They're casual, and they do have an appeal to sort of just marketing your game at a base level. So I would say no pre-release events are a bit worrying because it does seem like they've invested... Uh, the absolute bare minimum into organized play. And when I say organized play, just be careful with what <laughs> what you're comprehending that as because we're not extrapolating it out to like a you know a world championship, competitive players, whatever, but organized play is being like your local store, your weekly events, stuff like that. So no pre-release, no pre-release to me is like, mm, are they going to be like, they, they say that they're about the local game store releasing early in local game stores. And, you know, it looks good at first, but no pre-release is like, are they going to keep up that relationship? Are we going to have reasons to go and play this in our store? Or am I just going to be playing it online when I can through like an emulator and then go play grassroots tournaments. So yeah, part of the appeal is pre-release is just actually saying, Hey, I can get the cards ahead of everybody else. I can play it a week before it it's released. It, this isn't to say that you can't go to a, a pseudo pre-release where essentially whatever LGS you go to is just going to have an event organized on the day of release, but it loses a little bit of that allure where, Hey, I'm playing the cards a week before they're meant to be played. But so um, usually pre-release as well is um, they'll have some allocation of product that is allocated for pre-release that is set to like a certain price. So it's not scalped, um, which I think is going to be the case with Lorcana. So pre-releases tend to be like uh, at least in flesh and blood. Right. And I think it happens in magic as well. They're, they're pretty set and their prices are supposed to be approachable for players who can play the set where, you know, when the set comes out, the prices may wildly differ from MSRP and it kind of goes to, anybody's game so yeah a little bit worrying in that end i guess uh next piece is the fact that local play will be more so incentivized to playing the game bringing new players in and is essentially uh separating itself from winning for rewards it's playing for rewards so from what i understand uh it's going to be a situation where if you play and lose you get a point towards your progression in the standings or in local play or in your local pool if you win then you get two points so it's heavily leaning towards just showing up and playing and i believe if i'm not mistaken i read that they're also incentivizing people to bring in players to the game it's to it's to attract a bigger player base so a little little bonus if you refer a friend. So a little a little multi level marketing. Yeah. Kind of <laughs> yeah. No. It, yeah. it does. It does have a little bit of that like Amway kind of feel to it. Just it just is like it looks like this shape right yeah, here. It's a um, it's a downward uh, upside down triangle. Uh, trickle downwards kind of thing. So yeah, I think if that was actually the best system to incentivize players to come to like a game store, it would have been implemented by somebody like a Magic Gathering or you know any other major TCG by now. Um, I think it sounds good in theory, right? Because you're spiking your local game store is, in my opinion, kind of cringe. And everybody sort of comes to that 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 opinion eventually, I think, as they get better at the game. It's like, <laughs> it's not really a thing, right? But it not incentivizing... I, they are technically incentivizing winning a little bit by having the 2x multiplier. But still, it's like, if we pull all the way away from like any sort of competition, uh, you do get to like, why, why are you showing up sometimes... I, it really depends on the player you're appealing to. I just think that on the aggregate, if this was actually a better system, it probably would have been tried, implemented, and would would be the standard. Whereas, you know, I don't know. We'll see. It, it's 
it's interesting. Ultimately, I think that how the local game store is rewarded in terms of like, you know, Friday Friday Night Magic or Friday Night Lorcana play in this in this scenario is uh, very inconsequential to the overall kind of organized play of the game. Yeah, I don't want to dig too deep into it because again, we're going to dig into it as like the main theme of the episode. So we'll we'll circle back on this because I definitely have some thoughts on it. Uh, aside from that, stores are going to re- receive organized play kits uh, based on prize, like for their prizing and awarding a lot of it for participation. From what I understand, the kits are going to be free, and a kit should satisfy, excuse me, an LGS for about three months. And it's going to include, uh, it's there's going to be no packs as part of it. It's all going to be mm-hmm. things like promos, foils, posters, pins, stickers which, again, um, kind of deviates away from the whole, hey, you're coming here to spike a local. That's not how we're, that's not what we do. Like, if you spike the local, we're going to give you a foil and, a, and a, a pin that says happy birthday or something. Yeah, to be fair, I think Flesh and Blood does that, and the locals are still kind of spiky because the promos can be so high value, uh, and they look really cool, so people want them. That being said, usually the way that system works, and I could be talking to my ass here, is that uh, it's up to the local game store to actually add additional pack support on top of that if they want to. So pack per win, two pack per win, etc. You've all heard it if you've been to the local games store before. Um, they're probably just leaving that aspect more up to the game store rather than included in their sort of uh their kits uh beyond that uh still from the q a the uh, question about meta and balance was uh brought up and the 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 answer was in the ideal world which i think is true for all games is that they want about four decks to essentially define and be on top of the meta and that that i think is Okay, I think that's the tr- like that's uh, definitely attainable. We've seen it in mm-hmm. other games. Usually, it's about t- it's three is it's what three, yeah, yeah, three is yeah, three is where most uh, card games that put a lot of work into it usually land on. Four is aggressive and very optimistic, but in a game where perhaps you know, uh, like you know, we'll see how it shakes out because of the rule set and the nature of the game. But four in any card game is very is an ambitious target. Yeah, so the reason why it lands on three, by the way, is because of, I mean, you can just, we're basically taking the concept of rock, paper, scissors, and that tends to be able to scale towards, like, card games, to be honest. You have the best deck, you have the deck that beats the deck, and you have the deck that beats the deck that beats the best deck. Uh, And you tend to sort of rotate in that circle in terms of meta representation. Obviously, fourth decks are very common, but they tend to be underrepresented, and you could hardly consider it the big four rather than the big three, and then there's some sort of tertiary decks that sneak in there as well. Um, It's possible, to be honest. I think that 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 number seems to just kind of (laughs) been made up, but... Looking at Lorcana, at least in the games that I've played, the color identities, the colors specifically do have identities. Uh, for instance, I think it's about something like steel, right? So let's say Amethyst, the purple or black color, was the best deck in the game um, and is the best deck because it utilizes cards like Magic Mirror to get card advantage in the late game. Well, steel has access to creatures that blow up um, items so they can blow up something like magic beer. So I think that Lorcana does have this inherent design where, you know, there are sort of counters to specific colors in sort of their opposite color. Well, think about it this way. I mean, if, if it comes down to it where you, there are just certain cards that you absolutely have to address 
And if the only way to address that is with Bane, like, uh, not, I said, you, now you got me saying Banefire. Dragonfire. Dragon yeah. Uh, if the only way to address it is with Dragonfire, you're going to play the color that play. You're going to play Ruby to play Dragonfire. You're going to play Ruby to play Maleficent to change the game in the late game, you know, in the, in the late term or whatnot. We haven't seen all the cards, obviously, but some more actually, I think it was Steel. Steel just released another uh, like spot check kind of removal card, like a, like another point click delete card. Um, it's not quite like fire the cannons. I forgot what it was called, but we'll get to it because it was just revealed. But the tools are there, and like you mentioned, it seems that they're they're falling into line with color identity. Um, Steel seems to be like the most like I hate you cards, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. But. Still's good now. So yeah, still definitely got some upgrades recently. I think it was previously one of the most unsupported colors, but yeah, yeah, I think we're sort of we're starting to settle in more to the color identities. I mean, like you said, you mentioned it with needing uh Dragonfire to clear sort of pesky targets. I think that, you know, if you look sort of on the a, a different angle of that is if you look at Ruby currently, they have a lot of evasive things. They're not too powerful with the current cards that are out, but say that they were too powerful, you probably would need to play a color that can answer evasive threats. Because currently, there are some colors that literally can't do anything about evasive threats, except race. Uh, and last bit uh, of note from the Gamma Q&A is the fact that Lorcana will be building on an, a giant overarching narrative within the cards themselves. They said if you pay mm -hmm. attention to the lore, they have a big picture of almost like this overarching story that is being told with all the characters together. Now, I I, um, I forgot the name of the video game that has a lot of the Disney characters in it. Um, a lot a, a lot of player a lot of people are like super into it. I have a buddy of mine back uh, back in Montreal that played the crap out of this game. Uh, ultimately, it's just this seems to me like they're telling a story within the card games that they mentioned is something that will take years to progress and tell the story but they have they have this plan to tell this this to sort of portray or to deliver this narrative within the cards and the and the stories the cards themselves and a lot of other card games already do this magic does this like mm -hmm. crazy they love it flesh and blood does it they have lore that they develop through the release of various expansions looks to me like Lorcana has the same idea yeah, I think a lot of this looks pretty apparent, too. If you look at something like Hades, right? You have Hades, Exit of the Underworld, Hades, King of Olympus. It looks like there's some sort of progressive story arc going on there. As well as if you have Hades, we do have... I mean, I think about Hercules specifically. You look at Hercules, but then there's also like a bunch of supporting characters that would be around Hercules as well that are already printed on cards. Uh, so it does make sense. I think it's the correct choice. Like, I do think that Lorcana is going to work in the way that you know, set one is going to have a certain cast of characters, certain cast of Disney characters. And set two might include some from set one, but have like a new cast of Disney characters and have like the supporting characters around them, et cetera, et cetera. So what they'd actually said was they said, that I think the first two or three sets are going to be focused on everybody's note, like everybody's favorite characters, the ones that everybody knows. You pull somebody off the street, you show them a picture, like I know who mm -hmm. that is. They said after that, the sets are going to be thematic. Um, what that mm, means yeah what that means or, or where it goes you know is it gonna be like fantasia is it gonna be you know something along those lines or whatnot uh is it gonna be like cgi versions of cards coming out you know but um they have a plan so that's the good news for the game is that they've already got this 
long roadmap and what they want to attack and, and they're already developing. So uh, flash in the pan for this game, I don't think is really, it, this is a game I think that has enough of a financial backing that even if it, it isn't as huge of a success for the first couple sets, we're going to see five, six, seven, eight, nine sets of this game before they give it an actual look of like, do we need to get rid of it or, or whatnot or reevaluate? Yeah, I think it will have sort of triple A level lore, uh, which is what I would look at magic as you know magic has they really invest in the story every set they've had past you know books that you could read even if you didn't care about magic um but i look at something you know like a, a sort of opposite case of that something like flesh and blood flesh and blood does have lore but it's very inconsistent <laughs> you know like sometimes we get a lot of lore sometimes we don't some sets have had a bunch some and other sets have just had almost nothing uh, i think this will be more akin to magic where we have legitimate stories going on set to set and they're actually investing a lot in terms of like developing that lore and hooking people in and having people that are interested in the card game almost specifically for the lore yeah uh, and beyond that we got some new cards as well yeah, Flakes, I don't know where you want to start, but let's just go ahead and start with the broken cards, I think. <laughs> well, so. that's, that's your domain, because I'm uh, I'm notoriously bad at evaluating cards. So mm. this is where you come in uh, super handy. Luckily, I didn't evaluate. So I'm also bad at just evaluating cards in a vacuum, but we did get to play with these cards. Um, so I had a lot of people come up to me this past weekend, because Flake and I were at the <clears throat> Flesh and Blood Pro Tour, and they asked my opinion on Lorcana, because uh, with the the certain rules that we have right now, the gameplay. And my answer consistently is that I think the game will be fun if it's balanced and if they push card design. I don't think that Lorcana, in terms of its game systems, is inherently innovative or inherently fun. And I don't mean that by saying the game is unfun. I just think that for the game to be fun, it has to be very balanced, right? There has to be a good push and pull. Without that, I don't think that by just playing a simple game of Lorcana, if it's lopsided one way or the other, it's going to be like, you're like, oh, I really enjoy questing. Like, I don't think there's a lot of user feedback or like a fun experience there. So I, I hope the game is super balanced. That being said, I do also hope the game is very pushed in terms of car design. So there's been games for the past 20 years have been fixing the sort of Magic the Gathering mana problem, right? This idea of these lands, you feel bad, you can't play cards in your hand, etc. It just kind of sucks sometimes. But that has been fixed for a long time. I looked to a game called Force of Will. So Force of Will effectively had a sort of Hearthstone mana crystal one per turn uh, mana system, but then it was like literally Magic the Gathering card design. But what they did is they really pushed the design. So playing Force of Will feels like playing like Legacy Magic the Gathering or Vintage Magic the Gathering. And it's just like you're doing busted things all the time. You're comboing. It's And I loved it. I thought it was really fun because of that. Lorcana, I feel the same way. I think if I'm doing things in Lorcana that feel similar to like standard or mid-range magic where I'm just kind of, you know, we're having this sort of tension-ish around questing and etc. I don't know if that's going to be as fun as doing busted things and I really hope that they design cards that do stuff like that and you're like, what do you mean by busted, right? Because we haven't developed a baseline. So what I mean by busted is Maleficent Sorceress in Amethyst. A three, a three resource... Th 2-2 two, two, that can be turned into a land. By the way, that's one of the most important things about any card you have out in Lorcana is can it be turned into a resource? And it says, when you play this character, you may draw a card and it has one pip. So it's effectively a three uh, free roll at a 3-3 three, three, and has a 2-2 two, two body and reaps for one pip. A 2-2 two, two that reaps for one pip that costs three, not crazy, but drawing a card and replacing itself is freaking crazy. Like card advantage in Lorcana is crazy. Um, I, it's super, super powerful. But the reason why this card is broken 
is because there's another card that is more busted than Maleficent. It's called Friends on the Other Side. It's an action song. It costs three, and it can be turned into a resource, which is the most effed thing that it exists in Morkana right now is the fact that this card can be turned into a resource. Because if you look at other cards that can't, this card's more powerful than those cards. And it says, um, draw two cards. But also, because of the song, a character with costs three or more can sing the song for free. So you can play Maleficent, um, and then on the following turn, you can sing this song for free by tapping Maleficent. Yes, your 2-2 body that reaps for one might die, but it also does two damage because damage is persistent. It, it, and like you end up drawing three freaking cards. That's ridiculous. I think that this combination, Maleficent Sorceress and the Friends on the Other Side, is the most busted thing you can be doing in Lorcana right now. And there's almost no reason to not play Amethyst because of it. But that has my brain thinking, Flake. Yeah, I know. Because now I'm like, you know, <laughs> if Amethyst is doing this, the other the other colors have to be doing things that are freaking nuts. Well, right? Because Sorcery Speed Ancestral is good. So, the, okay, you, I, when, as soon as you jumped into this conversation, your eyes were absolutely like, there was a, there was a level of horniness to it that I was just, actually, frankly, uncomfortable with, Brendan. Like, <laughs> you were looking at this, you're like, let me get into this right away. And you're right. Maleficent that can play for three and then replace itself or become a resource. You have to think that if you're not running a four pack of Maleficent Sorceress and a four pack of Friends on the other side, then you're you're probably already building your deck incorrectly. Uh, yeah. Having the card advantage, how many times did we play? I, I know that one game where we were playing you and I, and I was on Ruby, and I was like, okay, I got to top deck a big one on eight, and I top decked uh, Aladdin, and I was like, all right, Aladdin's a, a, a solid one. That catches me up, and then you played your Moana. I'm like, I have no real way to get this. Oh, wait, I just top decked Maleficent. But I was legitimately on top deck because I wasn't holding cards because of the nature of the game is if you're playing if you're playing fat boys you have to be putting resources on the board consistently and then you're on top deck mode this solves that issue because yeah. even if you play maleficent do nothing with her play friends on the other side on your following turn which costs you nothing because you could actually exert maleficent to play it you've basically gone up plus two cards by playing and playing two so you're it's you're playing two you have a body on the board and you're drawing four that's unreal it's so busted. Like the fact that Friends of the Other Side is a song and can be sung by just these redundant pieces of crap that you have on the board. <laughs> so, like, I play Maleficent. Dude, honestly, you have an excuse to play Maleficent Sorceress just to thin your deck. That's a good enough excuse. It's a card that turns into a resource, or you play it as a 3 2 2 body that thins your deck because it draws a card. But the fact that that card can tap to draw me two cards for free is ridiculous. Isn't I. I is it Pascal? Right. Is Pascal of this color in this color as well? Yes, Pascal is also this color. You you have to be playing Amethyst is the base of any deck that does anything right now, uh, because m honestly Pascal is good, but this card draw <laughs> is better. It's way better. It's way 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 better because right now Lorcana with these cards is a super high variance game. Sixty card deck, and it just becomes a top deck fiesta because of the way your cards become lands and etc. It might change when play people get better at the game because you know maybe your deck that doesn't need those lands, you stop turning them into it after five or something. But I think people are already doing that, to be honest. But just thinning your deck, getting through your deck, getting to your power threats, getting off of top deck mode, it's super important. And then you throw in like two magic mirrors into a deck like this. It's like, oh, it's so good, Flake. Yeah, and that's the problem, right? It's because eventually when you're playing stuff like some of these card games, eventually, like you mentioned, it becomes a top deck fiesta and then you don't have any choice. And having cards in your head gives you options to make decisions. And that's where you can 
when you have choice, you have you have agency over how you want the game to go. Other than just saying, I have a card, I have to play it, I can't fall behind. And and I got lucky. I top decked an eight drop on eight and a nine drop on nine, and managed to win that game because of it. But if I'm drawing cards in the interim, it's a whole different story. And I like the point you made where if this is what they're getting, what the hell is everything else going to be able to, or what else is going to be released in the other color palettes that are going to basically compete? Do, compete. Yeah. Like this is all card draw, which is amazing, but not everybody's going to be a card draw uh, color scheme or mm -hmm. whatnot. So what the hell are they doing? Are they just going to put these behemoths on the board? Are they going to be having cheap units that, qu that that quest for two pips instead of one? Like what? where's the trade-off? I'm really curious to see where the other colors shore up and, and try to meet Amethyst in, in, you know, on the battlefield at this, uh, at this rate. Yeah, so I think that Maleficent Sorceress is powerful. Like, it is very, very good, and not a lot of other colors have access to cards that are a similar, at a similar level of power. I think Friends on the Other Side is broken. I would play Friends on the Other Side of my deck if it wasn't a song, and I had to pay three for it every time, and if it didn't turn it into a resource. But it's neither of those. <laughs> it turns into a land, if you ever need it to, and you can tap something, which... In Lor games of Lorcana, you will have redundant cards on boards that are doing nothing because you cannot quest with them. Because if you do, they'll just get cleaned up efficiently. And there's basically no point. You're just going to do this thing we call like alpha questing, which is you're going to build up a board and you're quest all at the same time. So your opponent can't kill you. Or you have lined up two quests. So you've lined up one like mate. You've quested everything. Your opponent can only kill four. You have seven on board. The last three will also quest on the turn after that to win. Friends on the other side is freaking busted I, and I think i've seen this on twitter too like everybody knows this card is broken because it costs zero mana effectively and that's nuts and you're drawing two cards <laughs> it's crazy and you pair this with maleficent like if you sit on the other side of the board for someone going maleficent turn three friends on the other side turn four play some other things you're like what the f they're playing a different game than you yeah they'll have <laughs> options and you might not and that's where you might uh, fall behind uh the other card i want to touch upon is we saw um we saw fire the cannons fire the cannons isn't necessarily new uh we've also seen captain hook captain of the jolly roger i think we talked about this card last uh, we talked about this card last episode but just the ability of steel now to pick and choose what they want to blast out of the sky but this is the three drop card or the, another three um a three cost card for steel to play with the difference is, and i think that it's kind of akin to friends on the other side because it's a three uh it's an action it's not a song it does create an act it does actually create ink like you can drop it in your ink well but this one is three cost deal three damage to chosen characters and we were talking about those breakpoints where why is fire from the cannon so important well it can answer something like pascal it can answer the one drops that you might not be able to answer the old-fashioned way but i feel like three for three is a little expensive in my eyes but i think that it's a necessary evil i think it's a tool that you will probably have to have yeah, it's because if you pay attention to the butts, like the defense value on a lot of these creatures, you'll see that three is like the 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 sort of basic premium, right? A lot of things will be X twos, and until you finally get to X three, and so the cost starts to increase. I think that's why this costs so much. Um, I also think that removal or direct damage spells, I mean, you can only deal it to creatures, obviously in Larkana, is way more powerful in Larkana than it is in something like magic. Like magic, I would never go lightning bolt your five five. 
and then we pass a turn, right? Because it just heals back up. Doesn't happen in Larkana. So what happens is you have this persistent damage. You'll have tons of things on board. You'll occasionally have things on board. I'd say tons of things, but it's pretty often if your opponent is like reaping consistently trying to temple you out, they'll have things that have like two life or something like that. Um, that maybe were five fives at one point. And the captain of the Jolly Roger allows you to recur that sort of removal. And it's honestly really powerful. You can get rid of evasive threats. Like I think Captain Jolly Roger is probably one of the most powerful cards in a vacuum that's not an amethyst, but it comes at a cost because it can't be turned to a resource. And as you if as you play Lorcana, you'll realize that that is probably the biggest cost you can incur in this game is cards that can't be turned into resources. So I think it's appropriately statted at that. But um, I mean, obvious. I, <laughs> if you haven't figured out by now, what used to be the best color was amethyst. Uh, Amethyst, gosh, I always forget the yellow Amethy- color's name. Uh, oh, Amber. 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 Yeah. And now it's Amethyst Steel by far because you have removal, you can get rid of evasive threats, you have card draw, you have recursion. Like, there's a few concepts that always break card games, right? One is recursion, another one is card draw, and there's probably a few others as well. But those are the main ones that, like, if you see that, you're like, okay, these are my colors, right? So, Flesh and Blood, uh, Dread of Brutality, and then. Kano. They all do those things. And that's how you break sort of these tenets of the games. You break the like the usual turn by turn cycle. And uh yeah, currently Amethyst and Steel do that quite well. Yeah, the other one is probably just uh creating these infinite loops that have incremental uh upgrades from turn to turn that eventually lead to a win condition. Um, which are like I'm thinking like Nexus of Fate, uh Tamio. Back in the yeah, taking extra turns is pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> let's be real. Like time time walking your opponent is a pretty damn good thing. I don't think that's ever going to exist in this game. I think that would be way too busted if you can just quest everything, take another turn, quest everything again. No, that's not happening. But I think you're right. I think Amethyst Steel has supplanted Amethyst Amber as the um, current, probably you know, heal out there that you're gonna have to deal with. But beyond that. Um, other cards to come out. We've got uh, in Amber, as we're speaking, uh, Maximus, the Relentless Pursuer, uh, a nice little pony. Yeah, three mana, three three, three mana, three three is a pretty standard body um, in this game. This this uh, this ability, when you play this character, chosen character gets minus two attack for this turn. I'm actually not a huge fan of it so far. I see it on a lot of cards. All those cards, it just feels like this. Uh, additional text that's like maybe a win more but outside of that i just have not seen it i've not seen games of lorcana play out where it's like damn i really wish i could neg their attack by two just no it's it's always like i wish i could draw more cards i wish i could recur threats things like that so this three mana three three is just kind of very average thing in amber it seems like right now um and it's fine but pretty much all the cards that have neg attack on them have not overperformed me. That's my big takeaway. Yeah, for like Maximus. I think that there's too much circumstance, like circumstantial, uh, like scenarios that you can't just play this on curve and feel good. That's the problem because the other thing about this is that if you're taking away their attack value, it's probably because you want to attack into them to get a better trade out of it. However, that that is under the assumption that your opponents are questing and exerting their characters. So if you're holding on to Maximus because you're like, I want to trade into this into this other character and I don't want to lose my character, so this is the perfect opportunity to do that. If they just don't 
quest with that character and you play Maximus, it does nothing because you can't interact with that creature anyways. So you have to wait. In which case, how greedy do you want to be with this card, with a card like Scar that does the same thing where you're going to take away the attack value? Because if your opponent just does absolutely dick all and just sits there while they're building a board, cards like Maximus and if your entire th- like theme of your deck and your entire strategy involves a lot of value trading, that that means that your opponent has to play your game. And if they mm-hmm. suspect that, they're just not going to play that game as much as you, you would want them to. They'll read into that and they might adapt. So I think that the this game plan and this kind of game text, I was really hungry for it and I liked it, but that was before we found out about the rule that if you want to challenge your opponent's creature, they have to be exerted and they have all of the agency over that now that isn't to say that there's going to be a card that comes out that doesn't say like hey pay three exert your opponent's character like elsa does that as well elsa exerts your opponent's character but i think it's too many moving pieces to get the value out of this Elsa also an amethyst, the best color. Now Elsa is actually really good because it allows you to take down big scary threats. So like if your opponent drops a Moana, right? You have this sort of persistent, always like reap three threat, right? They can always quest for three and you're like, shit, what do I do about this? They're not exerting about it. I can't interact with it. I have to draw dragon fire. Maybe I'm not playing Ruby. So you have Elsa and you're already playing the best color, which is amethyst. You're like, okay, well, my Elsa's on the board. Exert your character, kill it, right? So the thing about uh, Scar in particular, Scar has five attack. It can trade up. It can trade up to like something that costs more than it. Maximus, on the other hand, not really. It's probably trading with a with a two two resource card, probably trading with the three resource card. Unless you're double trading into something, which is just bad tempo if both of your characters survive, and just bad gameplay if one of your characters if both of your characters or one of your character dies because then you're two for one of yourself so yeah not super um impressed with that ability so far um anyway what i want to talk about here which is in amethyst i think it's important because a lot of people looked at cheshire cat and know like, cheshire cat is busted it's a zero through the reaps for two and you're right if you're playing against the right deck cheshire cat is good but it's mostly against the ramp deck the emerald sorry the uh sapphire ruby deck the the ramp deck which i think is one of the best decks in the game uh, it's good against that because your Cheshire Cat's going to trade for something that's a lot bigger than it. But ultimately, the way that all these zero X's get traded for is they just get a lot of one resource characters trade into them or a two resource character and a one resource character. Two resource character hits it first and kiss Cheshire Cat. Then your one resource character and you trade a one resource character for a three resource character and a four of Cheshire Cat. So it doesn't really plan out to be that good. I still think Cheshire Cat is a good card, but it's not great. Let's talk about a shit card. And that's Dr. Fassiter, which is in Amethyst. It's a, a 0-4, cost 2, it has 1 pip, and has Challenger 2. Challenger has been one of the most disappointing um, sort of things on cards, in my opinion. I thought Captain Hook, the sort of the one resource Captain Hook, was going to be great. The thing is, is like, like I said, when you start playing this game, you realize your opponent, you're not playing a you rarely play a mid-range game of Lakata, but it's like your opponent quests something, you clear it, you quest something, they clear it. It's like, no, it really doesn't happen. It happens in these like batches and one player gets tempo and is like significantly far ahead and they're questing and you're trying to maintain board parity. And then finally, when you turn the corner on them, you fill that role. There's rarely this sort of mid-range exchange that's going on. And da- Dr. Fastler sucks because as soon as you try to challenge or something... First of all, you have to be attacking. Your opponent sees you have Dr. Fastlayer, has full agency to not tap something that will die to the Dr. Fastlayer. Let's say they do. Let's say they, they tap something against an X2. You attack with Dr. Fastlayer. Dr. Fastlayer is tapped. 
Now on their turn, you get tempo off of doing this, so that could be your argument. I just don't think it's enough. They attack it with two things. They take no damage. It's total. It's they clear it. You you take them off questing those things, two things for a turn, but I don't think it's worth it for a Dr. Fasser. Contrary to that, there's another card that does something similar, which is Jafar Wicked Sorcerer. It's a four resource, two five with Challenger three that has one pip. This card is infinitely better because we go into the same scenario where you and I cleared something your opponent has has, re, has quested with, which, by the way, this gets Challenger 3, so it can kill things with a 5 butt, which is like the big scary threats. And now they can't just trade their their low-cost, just redundant things on board that are doing nothing right now. They can't trade all their one-cost things and their two-cost things into it. With Dr. Fastly, it's a total free roll. But Jafar, Jafar has a two-base attack, so it's going to actually clear a lot of things. I don't think Jafar is busted, but when it comes to Challenger, Challenger in a vacuum is not good, but Challenger on a four cost two five sure it's an upside but the fact this is two five makes sure your opponent has to pay a significant cost to actually clear it past just the tempo of questing which is all that dr fastly does and what color is it it's amethyst baby it's yeah the best color. it is amethyst and what's funny here is like let's say you go ahead picture this your turn three you drop maleficent right you draw a card that card you draw hey look at that awesome <laughs> stuff far. i just drew uh friends on the other side cool stuff past my turn all good on the other turn i'm gonna go ahead sing a fantastic song which maleficent is gonna pay is sing for me i'm gonna draw three cards uh or sorry draw two cards which is fantastic in itself i'm gonna drop another piece and then i'm gonna play jafar and all the all the dudes who came at uh, at maleficent might be afraid now to do anything because Jafar is just going to eat their lunch. And that's that's the reality of it. I think Jafar is a little bit of a tank, like you mentioned, and questing with it um, for one for one lore, sure, whatever. If But, I mean, at the end of the day, like you mentioned, it's a threat. It, this is a card that, if you play it on curve, will give your opponents pause for what they want to do because of how, how up it trades. And like you mentioned, it's not a free roll. Dealing two damage with persistent damage effects means that... Other cards can go ahead and finish the job. Perhaps if you're playing Amethyst Steel, now suddenly that five butt that that flew into it to deal some damage is now at three, and you could finish it off with Smash, or you can finish it off with, um, you know, a uh, a Fire the Cannons or something like that. So there are certainly opportunities here for Jafar to just be a, an absolute menace uh, on on the mm-hmm. on the board. Yep, and speaking about big butts in which we cannot lie about, let's talk about Mickey Mouse Musketeer. It's a recently spoiled card that's spoiled in, in cold foil. Six resource, can be turned into land. Two, seven, that reaps for two and has body card, which is effectively taunt. Um, and it says, all for one, the other Musketeer characters have plus one attack. So, completely disregarding all for one, and give you other Musketeer plus one attack. A two, seven butt that reaps for two and has taunt, is a big pain in the ass to deal with, to be honest. Your opponent has a bunch of one mana tutus. One mana two, when I say, sorry, one mana two pips or two mana two pips, and they're freaking questing. And now you got to get through this two seven. That's honestly so annoying. <laughs> like, it, this, this, these bodyguard cards, and especially one stat like this, because Hercules, we already seen Hercules, kind of ass, to be honest. Not very good because it can be cleared so easily. Mickey Mouse. Jesus Christ, like this is going to be so hard to deal with because how do I kill this card? I have to I have to take the opportunity cost of not questing with like what, three characters? Because that's what I'm going to kill Mickey Mouse. And then Mickey Mouse is going to fire the cannon three of my characters because it deals two damage. Like that's really good. That's that's really good value for Mickey Mouse. Like obviously if you play Mickey Mouse, you get, okay, let's talk worst case scenario. Mickey Mouse, Dragonfire. I traded my six costs, my six resources for your five. 
for your spot remove. That's good. That's not a bad deal. You know, I lose on that deal, but that's a fine deal. This card is a freaking pain in the butt to deal with. And it's uh, also, do it, it doesn't see itself for the buff, but if you play another one, they both buff each other. You play a third one, suddenly everybody's a 4-7. Like, it's it's crazy in that regard because you could just drop all four. If you have all four on the board, it is an absolute nightmare. Now, this is a card, again, Steel Amethyst is just, again, hammering down as being probably the problematic color scheme so far as we've, I've, as we've sort of just cycled through uh, all the strategies and such. You have card draw, you have removal, and you have... Uh, like stickiness, you have resilience on the board that is going to be difficult to deal with. And the fact that it quests for two, you drop it and you're like, okay, I'm going to quest for two and it's going to take two or three of your of your characters to clear it. And worst case scenario is it's dealing a few, a little bit of damage sprinkled around that I, like you mentioned, you could fire the cannons to clean up whatever you need to. But at the end of the turn, I quested for two, dealt damage. Your three characters are no longer questing. So I got a two, I got a two point lead on you and I, I stalled you. I stalled a lot of your board presence for a turn to deal with this behemoth. And who knows, maybe I draw another one because I've been drawing cards with, uh, with Amethyst and I play another Mickey Mouse Musketeer like it's gonna be nasty tough 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 yeah yeah absolutely and uh, honestly the there's additional opportunity cost on top of that which is i'm tapping my characters to attack which is thus opening them for favorable trades out of your characters that potentially cost less so those one drops you played initially to get the initial questing down and gain a few lore well now they can actually be used for something because mickey mouse is hitting them for two and they have two life left and now my flounder kills your fucking five drops it's nuts <laughs> it's nuts Okay, another card here. Be our guest. Action songs. So the, my, one of my favorite, it's a two costs and they can turn to me, return to a resource. My favorite thing about Lorcana is songs because songs are pretty effed, to be honest. They can be really, really good. So the ideal scenario for a song is like, let's say I'm playing Amber Ruby. Well, I have a four cost that has evasive. My opponent has no way to deal with evasive because they're playing Amethyst. They need spot removal. While I'm songing that character, tapping it, free rolling this, and basically you have impulse. If you play Magic the Gathering, this card is impulse. You may look at the top four cards of your deck, you may reveal a, a character card. So it's only character, by the way. So there's some limitation. And put it in your hand, put the rest on the bottom of your deck in any order. Like you're just digging through your deck. Um, I think this card is decent. The fact that when you turn to land, I think it's, I would play this card in my Amber deck. Depending on what my Amber deck was, right? I want to be singing the song. I want the character that I sing the song with to not just die immediately uh, to like a favorable trade by the opponent. But it's decent. I think it's interesting to see in what is Magic the Gathering's impulse in Amber. You know, I would have thought like, I don't know, maybe Amethyst because Amethyst seems to have all the F card draw. But, you know, it's a decent card, to be honest. I like uh, I, I like songs, man. It's just it's a good because a lot of the times you're not actually exerting your your characters to quest because it, you sometimes you just want to exert them to accelerate the game state or get to a uh, one of your win conditions or just yeah. to sort of uh, create a more favorable state singing songs is really is really messed up too because like if you look at uh sapphire in particular they have a five cost that sings songs you're a pretty expensive character to sing that song but what happens like let's say you're playing the deck i talked about which is sapphire ruby they have a spot removal card that you can sing as a song so you can sing as a song it turns whatever the opposing character into a land exerted face down and then you also play Dragonfire. It's double removal on a single turn off of five resources. That's a pretty big tempo swing on a on a board state in Lorcana right now. Um, next card that I think was quite fascinating was the Beast is Mine, an Emerald card, 
which is an action cost three says chosen character gains reckless during their next turn uh, which means they can't quest and must challenge if able fascinating card pretty garbage in my opinion and i'll tell you why i don't like this card because you look at it and it's like okay this is a great way to force a, ca a creature or a character or whatever that has been just sitting on its ass for a while doing nothing maybe it's waiting for something to actually do something the problem here is is that if you are playing reckless on a character you need to have one of your own exerted characters to on the receiving end of that. So you need to already have something on the board that can take the damage or is willing to trade into whatever you've given Reckless to. Now, what I can see here is, let's say you play a, a you, you put a fat boy on the board, you know, a big, a big creature on the board, you exert it, you quest with it, you say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna beast this mine, your Moana. The Moana then is gonna attack into your creature. But that isn't to say that your opponent won't already have characters on the board, won't challenge your Moana or your challenge your big creature to kill it first, and then suddenly there's no legal target for it to, to challenge, so it no longer has to challenge. Yeah, the Beast of Mine is an action, right? Yes. Friends on the Other Side is a freaking song. Yeah, it's a song. It's a song. It's It's like... You're cheating the way you pay for it. It's yeah. I, I'm I've become to, I've come to think that a lot of the early characters in this in this game, a lot of them, if you're building your deck, you're probably building it to a degree where you're just getting value, where they'll stay on the board as much as possible, and they're just avenues to to exert them to pay for songs. I think that yeah. that is the early game strategy in this. You're not playing early game characters to collect lore. You're playing early game characters that will trade into, trade up, or you're playing characters that will be able to exert for for songs. So the thing is, is like you have to play early game characters in your deck. You have to mulligan aggressively with them because the the other Maleficent, I forget the name of it, the one run resource one that reaps for two or the quest for two, you can't just let that go unanswered, right? Because your opponent can can get twenty five percent of their win condition pretty easily. So you're gonna need low drops, but like. Outside of that, you're right, Flake. Like they don't do a lot unless you have like Pascal and you're reaping. They they kind of just sit on board after the first few turns as you posture with your opponent to not let them get a shitload of value off of one drop. After that, they just sit there because you can't do anything with them. The beast is mine. Like I, I understand why people like it because they look at Emerald and they're like, okay, Emerald just can't do anything right now. <laughs> it's like nothing to do in Emerald except Lady Tremaine, Loop, Dragonfire, but. And then they have the Beast's Mind, which it looks cool at the beginning, but when you think of all the logistics that make this card have to go in your favor for the legit for the actual uh, incurred cost of paying three resources for this, which by the way, on curve is ass. Like you cannot be turn three playing the Beast's Mind. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, right? We have to see more out of Emerald, but currently I just take this card, set it right next to friends on the other side and just ask yourself why you're playing Emerald. Emerald needs one hell of a two drop or one hell of like a, a four drop that is like incredible in order to sort of rescue this this entire color. Because right now, I think that you're right. I think that if this is the leak that they gave us and it's like, hey, I think that they're, le honestly, I think that they're leaking this card purely from the fact that they want to they want to show off a new keyword, which is reckless. Mm -hmm. And I'm okay yeah. with that. It's, it's, there's still so much mystery to this game because we don't know all the, all the cards. It's the first set. These things happen. But I, I mean, People who are who are already married to a particular color. If your jam is emerald, um, like it has nothing. You don't know. It has nothing to do with the cards. I'm just gonna flat out say it. I'm gonna call your bluff. You like emerald because you like the color, or you like the word emerald that has nothing to do with the cards because the cards suck. It's the <laughs> it's it's just the reality of it. 
There's one thing I like in Emerald. Uh, there's two things, actually. I like Cheshire Cat. I think it's fun to play with if your opponent's not playing aggro. If your opponent's playing aggro, that card sucks. Um, <laughs> and then I like Lady Tremaine. And I like Lady Tremaine looping Dragonfire because you can get a shitload of value and then you can curve into Maleficent, the actual dragon. Now you're two for running and like it's a super high rolly deck that I think when it curves out is like pretty OP. But outside of that, it's it just doesn't have the tools yet. You sure. know, I mean, the current Emerald players are... Is the Azalea players have passed in Flesh and Blood? Like yeah. you might get your, you might get your day, you might get your day in the future, but it's not now. And Emerald kind of sucks, to be honest. Right well, now. let's just put this like I'm gonna again dissect what you said there a little bit because you mentioned the only things you like about Emerald. Frankly, number one was looping a card that is not an Emerald card. So you're like, mm -hmm. I just want to replay a non-Emerald card as many times as possible. That's the first thing. The second thing you said was, I like this card because if my opponent is playing a certain deck, then it's okay. Then it's good. So it has nothing to do with the cards being inherently good on their own in a vacuum. It has to do with the fact that I like another color enough that I want to, I want a way to play it more. And I need to make sure that my opponent is playing a certain deck for this card to be good. So Emerald's still uh, a hot pile of organic ass, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, honestly, that's kind of where it is right now. But we might get more cards. Um, I just think, that, like, okay. Last, we're going to talk about one more card, which is Beast Hardheaded. Um, it's a five cost, can be turned into a land 4-4 four, four with two pips. It says that no, ability is really important. Break, when you play this character, you may banish chosen item. So in a world where Amethyst is the best deck, I think that you can reasonably put two ish uh, magic mirrors in your deck and the reason you can't put four is it's hard if you want to get unless you want to get lucky is because they can't turn the lands and they're super dead in your hand um and that's how lands work unless you have some filtering thing which you can do with tinkerbell and steel you can do that um this thing is really good in the late game blowing up items i think items are going to be a big part of lorcana and uh i don't you know we, we talked about lorcana maybe not having sideboards and stuff so this is going to be very good against some decks and other decks not going to matter but a five cost four four the reese for two is kind of a fine body so the uh, the, uh, the sort of break keyword is or sorry break text is just like a bit of an upside this card has been very powerful especially in things like amethyst steel mirrors or you know amethyst amber because all those decks are going to play a magic mirror to sort of outvalue in the late game now that they have early card draw with maleficent and friends on the other side so um definitely a good card and i think part of the reason why steel is so good because if you're playing amethyst amber you're playing amethyst ruby you're gonna get wrecked by beast because <laughs> ultimately if you don't have magic mirror and your opponent has magic mirror and we're past turn five or turn six and they're just drawing cards on you every single turn well then you're gonna lose so if you have magic mirror and your opponent has magic mirror as well and you're keeping up the card draw parity well the beast is gonna wreck you Beast is a great card, dude. I mean, again, it, it's another two-for-one card to a degree. Like, I take one from you, and I put one on the board. It's also a 4-4. Four, four. It's not ultimately expensive. Like, it, this card feels like a six-drop to me, and so coming in at five, and you can turn this into ink, and it quests for two. Love it. And hey, what color is it? It's steel. What's the best color combination in the game? Amethyst steel. Like, it's... I just think that that's just the way to go in this game right mm -hmm. now, and I think... Uh, that's uh, that's where we're at with new cards. I think. I think we've we're we missing anything. I don't think so. I think we've covered it all. There could be some others, but they're more inconsequential, to be honest. Uh, we can loop back to them maybe in a future episodes when they get other supporting cards to go with them. Because right now, the only thing you really need to be focusing on if you're looking for the best deck in Lorcana is just Amethyst card draw, because nothing else really comes close. Pascal, and what's great is that in the previous we were talking about Pascal, or you were high on it and talking about how great it is. Um, a lot of the 
excuse me, a lot of the comments uh, from our previous episode, some people were like, dude, finally somebody is realizing how absolutely amazing Pascal is. Because a lot of people just overlook one drops because they're weak. But it's not just about how weak they are. It's how evasive they are. It's how you need to trade down to get it to a degree. And mm-hmm. um, But that's, like I said, you were spot on about that. Pascal is a one-cost quest four it seems like more than a one cost quest one 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 is it because like you at least how the game currently so the the only caveat to pascal's power level is that there are other evasive one drops likely in the form of ruby that become popular in some deck like that but outside of that your pascal is going to get so much value your opponent can't efficiently trade into it with fire the cannons they can't efficient i mean if they dragon fire it Hell yeah! So that thing gets a lot of gets a lot of uh, lower points usually. All right, we're uh, we're blown past our expected time here. We got to get to the uh, the the meat and potatoes here, which is essentially we want to just sort of dig in, spend like ten minutes talking about OP and uh, organized play and what was essentially discovered based on discussions. Now we're not going to give away our sources on this. Um, I don't even think it's all that secretive, but ultimately we don't we don't want to you know burn any bridges, but. There were conversations had with um, some of the big wigs out at Lorcana, people like Ryan Miller, et cetera, where um, what occurred was there was a little bit of um, unveiling or, or like the curtain was pulled back about what organized play is going to look like and what the mission is. Now, to basically give you a little bit of a paraphrasing and to boil it all down to a few dot points, the dot points are as such. Competitive play and high-level competition is not their focus. That is not their mission. Their mission is getting people to play the game at all, to bring in as many players to casually play and enjoy the game. The best discussion or the best um, sentence, I think, that sums this up is that this game is exactly what a store owner wants. It's not a competitive player's game based off of what was discussed in, in that regard. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, again, they're, they're, they're not really going to be pumping out, let's say, major competitive tournaments and such right out of the box. They're not going to be putting out things like, um, I don't know, um, you know, major tournaments regarding, uh, you know, with national championships, high prize money, uh, ELO, things like that. That's not what they're after. They're after getting people to attend the locals, to bring in their friends, to play the game, to collect the cards and reward players for showing up, not for performing. And that's basically what, what what's happening right now. Yeah, and I think that was uh, expected, to be honest. Um, I do know that they've caveated it by saying that they are planning to do some stuff in the future, but honestly, when people say that, don't ever believe that shit. Um, so maybe, we'll see. Uh, <laughs> but there's a bright side to this. And I, I think that for a game's organized play to be successful, it doesn't always have to come from the top. It doesn't always have to come from the publisher. I think that you can have a very successful competitive scene via grassroots tournaments. Um, and I know that I've talked to people who have run big tournaments for other games, 10,000, 20,000, you know, maybe looking at to do 100Ks in the next year or two, that they are looking to do grassroots tournaments with Lorcana. When it comes to like the positive EV on a grassroots tournament, if people are willing to show up, they want to play, they want to come compete and you can get a lot of people together. You can put on a stream and it's decent advertising for like, you know, whoever's putting it on. That's all you need. All you got to do is if people want to compete, there will be a scene period. Is the game going to be balanced at the competitive level? (laughs) I don't know. Honestly, it's, it's dubious, but yeah, I mean, all you really need is interest and people wanting to play constructed and they want to play against the best people in the world. And then boom, you have grassroots tournament scene. 
Yeah, you and I are already have have already had discussions with uh, people who are self self proclaimed card game degenerates, where they're just like, whatever it takes to create a great spectacle, to create a very like high enjoyment user experience. The if the demand is there, they're going to do it. It's not necessarily about making as squeezing as much money out of a situation as possible. Ultimately, their goal is to make money down the line. They're a business like anything else, but some of the people that you and I have dealt with and spoke to, they said like our initial goal here is to drum up interest and we understand that that's going to cost us money to build that community. However, from what we've seen with similar types of scenarios in Flesh and Blood, for instance, like the Realm Games doing the Realm Circuit, that was an investment. They put on a couple tournaments that cost them a lot of money that did mm-hmm. not did not come back from a financial return. The ROI on that wasn't in money. It was interest, and it was in establishing a name where now they're turning a profit on these things. People are buying from them. They understand them. They trust them. They're going to them as a vendor. These are the kinds of things where, like you said, you're not worried, and neither am I, that there will be a competitive scene in this. My concern was more so along the lines of it would be nice if Disney had their thumb and like their fingerprint on this from a from an OP standpoint because they have so much resources they have so much built in credibility where it's like dude it, it made sense everybody nobody had to say it but everybody already in their mind was thinking world championships at Disney World like <laughs> how how is that not a thing how do you not have the top let's say 200 players in the world competing at Disney World like an all expenses paid weekend kind of thing they've got the money but it all comes down to the philosophy of the game which is <laughs> it's it's a collector's game it's it's a it's a feel good casual game that people like we're not out there to reward the players who break the rules or or but make busted combos we're there to reward the players who enjoy the, the game who go out and play it and that leaves the door wide open for retailers and, and other entities to make amazing tournament circuits as they have already done and showed can be a successful model in other games yeah so whether or not ravensburger puts on their own organized play program i think I honestly don't care because um, I know that people will do it grassroots. If the game sucks and it's not balanced, then the grassroots scene will likely die. And that's just how it's going to go. But what Ravensburger can do is they can make it not a pain in the ass to do that. So there's, ways you, there's things you could do. Tournament software to help pairing, right? Some sort of ranking system to help ELO, which is probably way down the line. That's very much like a tertiary thing, but also a judging program, a way to evaluate judges. Because if you have a tournament, you need judges and you can't have people just making things up. Um, So if they come out with this game and they don't have that kind of stuff, yeah, it's going to make the grassroots tournament seem much, much, much harder. So I think that they can foster an environment where there can be very big, successful grassroots tournaments, but they need to put some sort of f- sort of like thought and foresight into it. It doesn't just happen. It's not just serendipity, right? It doesn't just happen. You need tools to run this kind of events. We don't need Ravensburger to sink a million dollars, a million dollars to like a 2024 prize pool. We don't need that. Uh, but we need rules we need judging we need just like the basic things that are required to run uh, a tournament and that costs money like let's get real about it it actually costs money but it is absolutely 100 percent necessary because even at the grassroots level if you've got you know uh like little timmy who shows up to the tournament has a question he's like oh i'm not sure how this works if nobody knows how something works then how is that supposed to heart like foster 
then it become mm-hmm. then it becomes a situation of like where everybody has their own version of how to play Monopoly. They have their own house rules, and then it becomes that at an LGS level where if somebody goes from one LGS to another and says, "Well, this is how we do it in our neck of the woods," then that creates a little bit of friction. Now, obviously, that's a worst case scenario, and it's like you know it, it could be very rare. But you're right because if grass grassroots and this game are going to be very very important, like they're going to be very intimately linked to the success of this game because there's no built-in uh, out-of-the-box OP. But I think that if if they can establish that, and they're going to have, they've already announced a companion app, right? So I wouldn't be surprised if within that companion app comes something like, um, you know, a you log in, you have like your score, your ELO. I think that like just a, create an on-demand tournament with with yeah. you know it's like okay they won't they won't have elo i'm almost 100 sure they won't have elo but um they won't have elo yeah. it's that that's absolutely 100 like they're not gonna have elo but what i'm saying like you like like how flesh and blood has the gem system where mm. everybody logs in okay you have your companion app cool um here's the code for this tournament enter it and then it shuffles the thing and it creates the bracket at the very least something like that like the re- the whole thing and i think if you if you back up like to our like episode two or three when we're talking about the companion app one of the things i said that would be on there was going to be tracking your games and a point system like you're going to earn points that could be potentially redeemed for promos or free entry into stuff or or a pack or whatever like you can go to your lgs and get a voucher for like, you know, you send it in or or redeem it for shit like that. Ultimately, I think that that's just the next step that if they just want to create a tournament system, that there's going to be infinitely amount of people out there who are going to uh, appreciate that. No ELO, that's not going to exist because you need something to curate that. And as soon as ELO exists, that's where you're going to have the, the, the sweaty, you know, the sweaty nerds out there going to LGSs to shark kids in order to get a few extra points on the ELO. I love sweaty nerds, but um, <laughs> for anybody listening to this, they're like, "What are you guys talking about?" There's a rules, there's a rules book in the in the fucking box or whatever. So the rules book and whatever rules you've read about Larkana, whatever's on the website, that is arith- ar- is arithmetic. The comprehensive rules is linear algebra co- combined with quantum physics. Like it is so different. It covers every corner case, builds like the fundamentals. Like the flesh and blood comprehensive rules is actually. I can't read it. I, it doesn't make sense to me. It's, it's literally harder to read than a foreign language, right? Because at least in a foreign language, I have cognates. There's some words that are actually related to English. The compare is the rules in flesh and blood, freaking ridiculous and a huge binder. Uh, and that's what it takes because when you play a game competitively, things start to get a little bit funky. So you know, how does this relate to this, et cetera? You know, this corner case versus that corner case, set precedent. It's like a legal system. But um, yeah, we need comprehensive rules. Yeah, well, comprehensive is like the like you said, it's the key word over there, and a judge program, and like you know, uh, you and I are friends with Josh Scott, like the head rules guy at Flesh and Blood, and yeah. and the the continuous work he puts in to solving the riddle that is that rule book, that it, to the to the degree where I think every two to three months there is a brand new addendum there's a brand new modification and clarification that comes out because the complexity of that game obviously Lorcana is nowhere near as complex as that game is however there are going to be situations where it's like well if i do put reckless on this character and somebody else kills this character does the reckless character have to have to challenge first if there's no legal target can they quest anyways if i kill the target like how does this work like there's going to be questions that arise and i think that 
it's just important because no matter what happens, whether it's a sanctioned tournament scene or if it's a grassroots realm game-esque circuit that exists in other games, if they put it on, excuse me, as long as there's prizing involved, there's going to be situations where a resolution to a, a conflict in a game is going to have to happen and there's going to have to be some kind of solid concrete thing that you could touch upon and say no this is the letter of the law and i know this because i am a level two judge and that's kind of where it has to go like there's gonna have to be an appeal process there's gonna have to be an end of the line last last resort kind of answer the 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 letter of the law at the end of the day so that's on that's on ravensburger that's on them to Mm -hmm. develop yes and please do it because i'm cool with it don't put up any money. Don't put any effort into OP, you know. We can do that. Like the, yeah, we'll fucking do it for you. We can do that. Yeah. Just give us the foundation. <laughs> like, if you're listening, Ravensburger, and I hope you are, I know that as far as I know, we have a decent relationship with Disney Lorcana. That said, if you're listening, it, it the wheels are in motion, the gears are turning, the the com- the competitive scene that you guys might might not be interested in making is going to happen whether you like it or not because there are people who are going to play the game and want to play for keeps that's happening all we want from you is clarity and definitive answers to complex questions or as complex as they may be and you can do that so please do that agreed good enough yep good enough all right that uh, I think that concludes our uh, discussion about OP and and all the cards. Now I think it's is it time for mailbag, Brendan Patrick? Yes, 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 sir. It is. All right, let's roll into spill dink, and uh, the first one is from our good friend Andy. Uh, Andy is one of the luckiest card box openers I've ever met in my entire life. Um, it is actually unreal and unfair. And he basically asks, how worried are you that this is a game? Uh, this will be a game dominated by secondary market and collector influence. Um, not worried because I know it's going to happen. <laughs> so I'm not worried about what it. What a curveball. <laughs> uh, it's a, it's pretty much a guarantee. Like it's just the IP is too big. The hype is too big. Like it's going to happen. Ravensburg is keeping it a bit open-ended by saying that, you know, they're going to print to X demand. We, nobody knows what the hell X is. They're no, not doing first edition, all this stuff. So looks like Ravensburg is pretty interested in actually getting cards to people who want to play with them rather than people who want to put them in their, you know, their safe or something like that. So, I mean, that's a step in the right direction. There's a lot of new TCGs that get a lot of hype that don't do that. And we see, you know, their cards get scalped to hell. And, uh, yeah, so I think that they're going to try. But I'm pretty sure that it's going to be really bad in terms of secondary market value and how much you're going to have to pay. But that is, I think that's the price of like a great, a new great game. You, and you know, I hesitate to say that because I don't know if Lokan is going to be a great game, but it is going to be a great TCG. <laughs> so I think that's that's the price you pay. It's, it's going to be a, it's supply and demand. The demand's going to be there. It's going to be a successful TCG um, mm-hmm. by all metrics, as far as we understand it. Um, I think that uh, I like your answer because your answer was basically Lucy from Charlie Brown. You set the football and you absolutely just yoinked it away. <laughs> um, that said. I, I genuinely believe, I genuinely believe that it is going to be a concern f- in the initial waves. I don't think that there's going to ever be a situation where after like the second week of a launch of a particular set, you're going to have trouble finding the game. And the reason why is because also at the Gamma Expo, they were talking about how, sure, allocation and, and supply will 
uh, kind of be a problem for LGSs, but they also said that the lion's share of these packs and boxes and product are going to places like Target and Walmart. They're going to get absolutely flooded with this stuff. So I, I they've ramped up production, but I still think that if you want to get cards in the first like month, it might be a struggle. Yeah, one thing I'll say is that I'm pretty sure that these guys are always wrong when it comes to this. So, yeah, I think about, a, I don't know, I just, I do like a sort of analogy to something like a Blizzard, right? So Blizzard will launch big games. And Blizzard's been around for, God, over fucking, almost 20 years plus now. And they've launched some of the biggest games ever. They're, I think they're more than a billion, worth more than a billion dollars. Any big game that Blizzard launches, it's always unplayable on the first day because the servers break every time and these ice these guys you know if you're if you're worth that much money been making guns for that long you can be sure as shit that they're they're investing and trying to make sure their servers stay online but they never work because the demand always exceeds what they think is is possible and i think that's what happens with tcgs like magic is a pretty popular game been around for a long time and I know their next set is potentially getting delayed. So why does that happen? It's because it's actually not that simple to just print as many cards as possible. And I think that even though Ravensburger is like, you know, kind of massaging this, like, no, there's a ton going here. I just don't think it's going to happen. It never does. It, it's always, the demand always exceeds the supply. They're always scalped. And I just think it's, there's too much hype. Like, I just, I don't think they can accurately predict what's going to happen because, nobody ever can when it comes to stuff that there's this sort of like there's this much interested in i have a screenshot of the day overwatch 2 launched and Dude, me and I'm my buddies that. were all trying to log in and it's like i'm like okay i'm there's forty thousand people ahead of me in the queue i'm like and then the same conversation occurred amidst all of us i'm like it's blizzard it's blizzard it's it's possibly the biggest game co- like publisher in the world um, what the hell? How how do you not anticipate one of your biggest titles not having everybody like you know like how? But again, the whole issue is like you mentioned. It's not that they don't want. Excuse me. It's not that they don't want the servers, you know, to be up and running. It's that the demand is just always just flies way past whatever the hell they thought that was going to happen. They're just unprepared. And I think that no matter how many cards they say they're printing, it's it's all going to get sold because it's not a, a matter of like, if everybody's out there and so if somebody went out there and wants to buy this product, like scalping it or whatever, and they go to the store and they said, that no matter whether that store has 50 boxes or 100 boxes, their dem- their request will be the same. Give me as much as you can. Dude, everybody I've talked to that is a store or has access to distributors, that's what they're telling the distributor. I know some big fishes with Southern um, and some of these, you know, I think it's three major distributors in the United States, and they're all saying, I'll buy as much as you can physically give me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's what happens. Like, it's not that they don't want to meet that demand. They would love to sell more, but it, it, it just, it, it never works. I promise it never freaking works. It, and if you think I'm wrong, before we get to the August release of Lakana, there's another thing that's coming out in June, which is the biggest game of the year, Diablo 4. Diablo 4 has gone through beta after beta after beta. And I promise you, when Diablo 4 releases, it's going to be unplayable. <laughs> It'll be unfucking playable Every time, dude. I, I swear to God, every single time. That's why whenever like a Call of Duty comes out, I'm just like, I'll wait a month. I'm happy to wait a month. Like, if I even want to touch it after then, no problem. But every game that comes out, 
seems to be a gigantic circus of bugs, problems, and whatever. And the problem is, is nobody learns. Everybody pre-orders, and the same thing happens. But yeah, what if what if what if their pitch was like, hey? Um, we have this awesome game coming out. You know, really thought about. It. We've been developing for ten years. Our goal is to have the servers shit themselves on day one. We're gonna have a ton of bugs in the early in the early the early builds, so that we get a bunch of bad reviews and like we tank our Steam reviews. Nobody thinks that way. Everybody's like, yeah, no problem. We got all the servers. We got to hire this new guy. You know, we've got. No, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't. Um, <laughs> next question is from uh, our good friend John Blevins, who's a. Uh, Marvel Snapcaster as well as a uh, podcaster, just great, great dude all the way around. Uh, f- uh, Rune Terracaster as well asks, uh, "How about are there measures in the game that force interactions?" Uh, basically, his concern is the fact that he doesn't want to do like you mentioned, like what stops players from just building a board and then just OTKing, just one tapping everything. So that's the question: What are those measures in the games uh, that force interactions? There's not a lot currently. So it is a problem. Um, I would say games don't really pan out where it's like both players build their board and they all kind of try to alpha reap, like ra- uh, race each other, alpha quest all at the same time. What tends to happen is one player is ahead. One player goes first or one player has a tempo. They maintain the tempo and they're sort of reaping with their Pascals or their, their cheeky one drops or things you can't trade with and they're gaining lore. And then they get to like that 10 plus, maybe close to 15 lore. And then, yeah, they do exactly that. They just build their board. They say, do you have the spot removal? And then they, alpha quest and they win the game and all you can do against that unless you have elsa or spot removal is you just have to race back and that's honestly the worst thing about lorcana right now is because combat in lorcana is not a primary method of the game it's very secondary or tertiary it's like look we have engaged in combat because i have reaped and i've chosen to reap because i have seen this as a positive ev choice for me to make i reap or sorry i quest i know that you will trade my two into my tutu with your three three but i've determined that i will come out of this plus EV because I have something that pings for one. Or I have another thing that trades better into that. Or I'm reaping and you know, if I reap with all my creatures this time, you kill my 2-2, you get a positive trade. I still have three over so I can I can alpha quest at the end. It's like that that is Lorcana. It's not this combat system where we're going back and forth. I tend to agree. I mean, the game definitely needs interaction, dude. It absolutely needs interaction. But sometimes I feel like the more interactions, then you have you have like the pressures of becoming a little bit more complex than layered in those interactions. Otherwise, they're just like, well, this points at this and deletes this. This points at this and deletes this. Then yeah. it becomes an issue where newer players might become a little bit more intimidated by cards that do too many mm. things. And maybe that takes away from the overall mission statement of what this game wants to do. But I think the game is complex, though. So that's one thing. Is like I think the game, even right now, is relatively complex. It's actually kind of, like the math is kind of hard because doing the math on like okay, I reap with all my creatures now, and then my opponent kills my opponent has five creatures can kill three of my creatures with that but still has to tap everything to kill those three and then with those four i'll be able to quest again and then if i play two more creatures over those two two turn cycles on my third my third alpha quest i'll be there that's like three turns you're planning out in terms of questing it's actually kind of complicated and if your opponent has spot removal it throws like a variable into that so i still i think the game is complicated right now it's just like it's got that game design where it's the the base level is extremely simple. Like anybody can play this game, but I do think Lorcana will actually be one of those games where the better player will cons- like. I think that your local game store will have people that just kind of dumpster on people because the math is a bit quirky and complicated. And I think if you make one mistake in the game of Lorcana, like you just eat it for the rest of the game. Well, there's you a- lose tempo. You lose tempo. It's rough. There's a game I played against you where 
I was basically like, oh damn, like you see it, it's written on the board. You're like, if I, I'm like, if I don't draw something that answers something, then I lose the game. And because I'm looking, I'm like, you quest, I trade, you quest again, I can't beat you. Like these are the kinds of things. Or like there was a part where I'm like, I'm gonna quest. I'm like, no, I can't. Because if I do, then you just win. I have to trade, and then it becomes that. But like, I like, I think that the the above average players are going to be the ones who see the the two turn play, and the excellent players are going to be the ones who also factor in the okay. I see two or three turns ahead. How much lore I can actually quest for in those two or three turns? If I also draw and play, so like mm-hmm. it's those kind playing along with the uh, the variables that you are that are uncertain and factoring those into your win condition and your game plan. That's I think where it becomes a little bit more complex and the the great players will emerge. But as it stands right now, to answer your question, Blevins, there's not too much interaction outside of challenging questing questing characters. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, last one from Travers Tavern. A uh, very simple question, but actually quite an important one. Are one cost two two vanillas with one lore good? No. <laughs> so what they do is they give you insurance against one drops like Maleficent uh, biding her time, which is a one cost one one that reaps for two. Because you can't let that sit on the board. Ideally, you have a one drop, a two drop t- trades pretty well into Maleficent. So your one drop can contest Maleficent, right? So your opponent plays Maleficent, biding her time, and threatening to quest two pips. You play a one drop. So basically, you say, your opponent, you say to your opponent, you can get two pips, I will trade into you, and you win that trade. You net two pips, we trade one for one on a creature. It's pretty ass for me, but I'm on the draw, and that's what happens. But let's say you do that, or you drop a 2-2, and you're like, okay... I will give you the possibility of having four pips, but then I efficiently trade into you, and now my one mana, one, one, they can read for two, is not going to read for two and put you back on the same decision process. But your two mana, like your two costs, two twos that read for one, I just don't think they present enough threat outside of that. I'd rather have one cost creatures most of the time. There's also, like, you see Aurora, Regal Princess, and Sapphire, two costs, two, two, reads for two, also shifts into a of F card, which is the other Aurora, which is a 3-5 that gives Ward, which is a great card. <laughs> Aurora Dreaming Guardian. Um, the two-cost uh, two-twos that Quest for One is like the most, I think as bad as vanilla as you can get in um, in Lorcana. And I think a good example for like two-cost two-twos is Yzma, because Yzma's in Amethyst, which is the best color. And Yzma sucks ass. <laughs> like, <laughs> you will cut Yzma from your deck because you're like, wow, this does nothing. And it, it is effectively a vanilla character with an upside. Beauty. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks again to everybody for submitting their questions to the uh, podcast. If we missed yours, well, we got uh, we got another episode in two weeks, so that feels good. You can always drop us in there. New information always coming out every weekend uh, or every week in Lorcana. Again, that's the beauty of a fresh game is that everything is brand new and uh, we can dissect it. But again, if you want to ask us questions, you can always do so by going to at podcano on Twitter. You can ask uh, myself personally at watchflake or at Brendan APG to get in touch with Brendan. We're always out there. We always love interacting. We love cards. That's what we do. And that's another episode, Brendan. I think it was a good one. Awesome. Hopefully get some more busted cards for the next episode. Busted cards. <laughs> busted. All right, friends. Thank you so much for listening to PodCan. Make sure to uh, hit that five-star review. Subscribe to the channel. Do all that jazz. It certainly gives us a lot of love and helps us down the road. And until then, we will see you next time on PodCan. So be good to each other. See you, everybody.